RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. I remember being told by a, a new judge that he was very disappointed that I had reversed him in some judgment. And um, I just sort of smiled at him and said to him, well, um, it won't be the last time. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner of the law firm RPC. And in each episode, I'm joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Sir Bernard Ricks and we are going to discuss a judge's view of insurance. Sir Bernard was appointed a High Court judge in 1993 and then sat as Lord Justice Ricks on the Court of Appeal for 13 years until 2013. Amongst his many insurance judgments are Kidsons against Lloyd's Underwriters, Rothschild against Collier, and Arab Bank v Zurich. He is currently Professor of International Commercial Law at Queen Mary University of London, and is a former president of the British Insurance Law Association. Since 1986, he has been a director of the London Philharmonic Orchestra, but to a whole generation of insurance lawyers, Sir Bernard will always be known as a judge who shaped the development of insurance law in the UK, perhaps more than any other in recent years. And that is what we're gonna to discuss today. So, Sir Bernard, what an honour it is for me to say welcome to the podcast. Oh, well, thank you, Peter. That's a very kind and over-generous introduction. But I'll do my best to live up to it. Right at the outset of the episode, uh, we should say to, to listeners that, that we're not going to be discussing the finer points of legal cases, much as I might want to. Uh, the, the aim of this is to be an episode for, for absolutely everyone, kind of lawyer or non-lawyer. So, Bernard, let's start at the beginning. You, you studied classics at university. Uh, but then you went to Harvard Law School to study a, a Master of Laws. So at what point did you decide that the legal career was the career for you? Well, my first memory of, of an ambition was to be a, a writer, a author, as I called it, at a very young age. But I think my um, falling in love with the law, if that's not putting it too strongly, goes back to, as far as I can think of, about the age of eight, when I made up my mind that I wanted to be a barrister, a lawyer and in particular a barrister. And I can't quite remember what set me on that path. I think it must have been seeing something in a film, probably. I don't know whether it, it, it works to say Charles Lawton in a Witness for the Prosecution. Yes, something like that. that. That may not be the right timing, but it was something that set me off all that dressing up in, in wig and gown and so forth. And when I came to look back on it, I thought that perhaps even at an early age, I liked the idea that there was a sort of order and rationality to the way we live our lives. And that perhaps is what attracted me to the law and the dressing up. <laughs> Obviously the dressing up, why not? Um, and, and what was it like being a British lawyer at Harvard? Oh, well, I went, I went there in 1968. And I went there because uh, a few years earlier, I had been to America during my long vacation, my long summer vacation. And I'd had a wonderful time. And I was deeply impressed 
by my experience there. And I decided there and then that I wanted to go back and find out more about America. And it struck me that going for there as a student would give me the chance to, to live there as a resident, but temporarily. Um, I didn't at that time think in my arrogance, if I, if I may criticize myself in that way, that um, they were going to teach me anything about the law. But anyway, uh, my year at Harvard Law School was one of the most wonderful years of my life. And boy, did they teach me about the law. And boy, did they show me how arrogant my previous thoughts had been. I'm deeply grateful to, to Harvard Law School. I, I think that in a way, they gave me a chance to seize an opportunity, which I had later in my life. It was completely fascinating. You then went from there to start your career as a barrister. Um, and th at that point, so before you became a judge, what was your area of expertise? What was insurance a big part of that or, or not at all? No, uh, it wasn't a big part of it at all. I don't think I can say not at all. But on the whole, my chambers, although deeply commercial chambers, centred on shipping and sale of goods, didn't do a great deal of insurance work. And indeed, in those days, going back to 1970, there wasn't a great deal of insurance litigated in the courts. I mean, if, if someone had, had uh, set fire to their own premises or, or something like that, then the insurers might um, dig in their heels. Similarly, if they'd scuttled a ship. But um, no scuttlers came my way. And I didn't do any insurance, I think, for quite a long time. The odd big reinsurance company went bust. That was handled elsewhere. Most of the insurance work was done in different chambers. As time went by and Lloyds of London got deeply mired into the asbestosis claims being made, particularly in America, I did get involved in a bit of reinsurance, arbitration and litigation. But that was about the sum total of it. So in 1993, when you became a judge for the first time, it's probably fair to say that you, you didn't have a, a huge amount of, of insurance experience. But at that time, I mean, you already started to say that insurance was perhaps becoming a bit more of an attractive area to, to barristers. Is that right? When I went on the bench in 1993 and, and joined the commercial court, I discovered that insurance was just about the biggest flavour of the day in the, in the courts. And now it's almost entirely disappeared from the courts and it's gone into arbitration. And that, that, that's another story. You may, you may have a question for me about that. But in 1993, for the six to seven years that I sat in the commercial court, I think that insurance was just about the biggest single item of dispute in the courts. And basically, I had to teach myself insurance as I went along. Bit of a baptism of fire, you might say. And, and indeed, because as I understand it, you were introduced to the joys of, of insurance kind of very early on in your judicial career, partly because of a series of famous cases that arose from, from the Gulf War. And um, when we talk about the Gulf War, we're talking about the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait on 2nd of August 1990 and the subsequent campaign to liberate Kuwait, rather than the much later Iraq War. 
which is completely different. So I, I believe your first case that arose from the Gulf War was Hill against Mercantile in general. What's your memory of that case? I remember Andrew Longmore was in the case. I think he was for the claimant or the plaintiff, as we still called them at that time. And um, he was seeking summary judgment arising out of the extremely complex claims arising out of the loss of Kuwait's whole air fleet to the uh, Iraqi despoilers. And he put me under great pressure, I remember feeling, as a young judge, by telling me that all the other reinsuring defendants had settled the claim and mercantile in general were the only ones that were holding out. And, and this really put me under a lot of pressure. Anyway, I uh, refused summary judgment and it was just about my first judgment in 1993. In 1994, it got to the Court of Appeal and my judgment was overturned and Lord Justice Hurst, adopting the submission of the great Sidney Kentridge, said that I had put back the clock on reinsurance law for over 100 years. <laughs> well, uh, I was a young judge then, and I thought that was um, part of my life, and I bore it as, as best I could. Imagine my surprise when two years later, I'd completely forgotten about the case, at the judges' dinner, which the City of London kindly puts on and invites all the judges to once a year to the Mansion House, a member of the House of Lords said to me at the dinner, oh, Bernard, he said, you might like to know that tomorrow we're restoring your judgment in Hill and Mercantile in general. And I'd completely forgotten about the case. And I remember thinking at the time that he must have confused me and, and muddled me up uh, with the winning uh, counsel on the other side. But at any rate, it turned out that he was right and the House of Lords did restore me. And that was a very good feeling indeed. I, I can I can imagine. How did you how did you feel when the Court of Appeal? I mean, as a young judge, it must be quite, as you say, a bizarre feeling to think that your judgment is being questioned by the Court of Appeal and subsequently by the House of Lords as well. It's a, a strange feeling for you, I'd imagine. Uh, you, you bear it as best you can. It's always nice to be upheld. It's even nicer to be restored in the House of Lords, and it, it's always uh, disappointing to be told that you'd got it wrong, but. It is, um, it's part of the course. I remember being told by uh, a new judge that he was very disappointed that I had reversed him in some judgment. And I, I just sort of smiled at him and said to him, well, it won't be the last time. Which wasn't in any way a, a criticism. It was just a, an acceptance of, of your role. I mean, it's a very good lesson. As mentioned, that the Gulf War generated a number of other insurance cases, all of which seem to land on on your your judicial desk. Um, kind of probably the best known amongst lawyers is Q8 Airways against Q8 Insurance, which was all about the definition of any one occurrence, and that was another one of your decisions that ended up in front of of the House of Lords. However, I'm aware that you have a particular fondness for a third Gulf War case, all about Royal Boscalis. So please tell us about that. Well, Royal Boscalis, which went to the Court of Appeal, and I was reversed in it, was an absolutely fascinating case. 
It arose out of a Belgium-Dutch dredging fleet, dredging the Châtel Arab under a contract with one of the ministries of the Iraqi government. And uh, it got overtaken by the Iraq invasion of Kuwait. Um, but Saddam Hussein, who was really calling the shots, was using this fleet as, as part of its human shield protection. And he demanded that they continue and complete the, their dredging contract, which they were compelled to do. And they did, in fact, complete the contract uh, not long before Desert Storm broke out. The manager of the fleet, who was a redoubtable Dutchman, did a wonderful job negotiating with the Iraqis the extrication of his fleet and their personnel from Iraq. I mean, it took quite a lot of negotiation. And in the end, he could only negotiate its extraction by entering into a, a secret settlement agreement whereby the fleet waived all its many, many claims arising under the dredging contract. And he also had to sacrifice and return an advance payment. And this, this marvelous man was put under threat of death if he breathed a word about this settlement agreement. And as a result of which, the settlement agreement was not initially disclosed in the disclosure when the Dutch fleet sued its underwriters to recover uh, what they claimed was either the constructive loss of their fleet, alternatively, the great sue and labor expenses of extracting the fleet, including all their losses under the contract. And one of the extraordinary number of arguments raised by the underwriters in defense was that this failure to disclose the settlement agreement was fraud in the prosecution of the claim. And an enormous amount of marine insurance law was looked at. A great deal of illegality of the contract was looked at because the underwriters said that the payment uh, under the settlement agreement was made in breach of the United Nations sanctions, which had been adopted by all the relevant countries. So it raised some fascinating law. In the end, the Court of Appeal upended me uh, saying, I think two to one, Lord Justice Phillips dissenting, that the claim was an illegal claim. And uh, they also said, I think, that there was no effective loss because the duress put upon the claimant being unlawful, they could simply have gone to arbitration and got everything in arbitration under Iraqi law. Mm, I wasn't sure about that. I'm sure that would have worked, yeah. That was a really good point. Anyway, there was also a point that all the cost of extricating the fleet had been done primarily or as much to extricate the personnel of the fleet who were not insured as distinct from the dredging fleet itself, which was insured. So that was another point. Anyway, my judgment was upended, but just before it was upended in the Court of Appeal, I got to stage two of this litigation, which was to state the quantum of sue and labor, which in my original judgment, I had said was recoverable. And I wrote another very long judgment on quantum. You can imagine all the difficulties of that. And then after the court appeal had upended me, it turned out that the claimants petitioned the House of Lords against the court of appeal judgment. They got permission 
from the House of Lords. And then they promptly settled the case for the last farthing of the damages which I had awarded in my quantum judgment. And one of the difficulties about my judgment is that I had halved the award that I gave on the basis that, probably wrongly, and Lord Justice Phillips had said in a dictum in the Court of Appeal that I had got it wrong, I had said that I didn't really know how to decide how to deal with the fact that the settlement agreement was made largely or in part in order to extricate the personnel rather than the fleet. So I um, adopted the wisdom of King Solomon, who after all has been famous for uh, nearly 3,000 years for his wisdom, and I split it 50-50. That was probably wrong, but at any rate, it led to the settlement of the case ultimately. That was a wonderful case. Wonderfully argued, too. Yeah, I mean, as a judge, are those the, the the cases where you end up having to do a hundreds and hundreds of paragraph judgments? Are, are they the ones that you actually enjoy because they're, they're the ones you can really get your you know get into the nitty gritty and they force you to think on the edges of where the law stands at the moment. Well, some of the shorter cases can also raise a, a, a nice point, and it's always nice to have a short judgment which you can dispose of quickly, but. Um, But yes, the the difficult cases can be very rewarding. I think that the Kuwait case, which you mentioned, and the Royal Boscalis case were amongst the hardest cases that I've dealt with. I mean, many cases you do in the Court of Appeal are very, very difficult. That's why they get to the Court of Appeal. But one of the problems of being a trial judge is that you have to do it all by yourself. In the Court of Appeal, you've got two other judges to talk to and to help you, and that is a very great help when dealing with difficult problems. So I I think working out a difficult, heavy, long case as a single judge at trial is very difficult and can be very rewarding. And and do you think that your lack of background in insurance actually helped in in reaching decisions in those Gulf War cases and that you, you didn't come to them with any preconceived views on how insurance law worked? Um, I find it rather difficult to answer that question. I mean, there there is nothing like experience, is there? There's nothing like experience. And I can remember a case that I did as as a junior to to my uh, then ex-pupil master, Ken Rokeson, such a wonderful advocate, called the La Ora Prima. It was all about demurrage. And we did it in the Court of Appeal. And... Uh, the Master of the Rolls, then Lord Denning, was due to sit on it, but the last moment he had to pull out. And the Court of Appeal we were presented with were three non-specialists, three, three generalists who didn't really know about shipping law. And they got it wrong uh, as the House of Lords, with the help of Lord Diplock, subsequently uh, said. And I did hear that the shipping industry was really concerned about the fact that there had been no specialists in the Court of Appeal in that case. Uh, and had made representations that that shouldn't happen again. And I I think um, Lord Denning made sure that it didn't happen again. So there is a great deal to be said for the specialists. But we also, like our generalists in England, in the civil law, in their highest courts, the Court of Cassation, in whatever language it's called, is very often broken into divisions. Their highest courts in civil countries usually are have many, many more judges than we have in our House of Lords or Supreme Court now. We only have 12. They have perhaps 100 in the French 
called Cassation, a country of a similar size. And they split their judges into divisions according to their specialties. And when, they, when a case gets to their court de cassation, they put the case in the specialty division. But we don't like doing that. We, we like having generalists on the court as well as specialists. And I think that's a very good combination, actually. It's very good for the generalists to keep the specialists in order. And of course, it is very good, as I found in my criminal jurisdiction as well, not really having a background in the criminal law, to have to deal with things as a matter of principle always and not being able to rely on experience. That, that I think, is, is a very good discipline. Indeed, but um, obviously within the realms of insurance, you became kind of very quickly known as an insurance expert. So how does that work within the, the Court of Appeal? So judges are allocated by the master of the roles, is that right? So is it an insurance case comes to the Court of Appeal and the master of the roles comes up to you and said, Bernard, it's an insurance case, one for you. Is, is that how it's done or is that extremely simplistic? It's a complete mystery to me, actually. I, I don't know. I, I, I might have known, I might have inquired. It may be that others know. I have to say it's a complete mystery how cases get allocated, whether in the commercial court or in the court of appeal. Uh, I know that in the old days, it was always said that uh, Lord Denning, then master of the roles, picked all the most interesting cases for, for himself, and he loved, he loved doing commercial cases. I think the master of the roles retains the discretion to make sure that uh, really important or difficult cases come into his court, and he has a discretion. But I suspect, without knowing, that it's done on a more general and formal basis by listing officers and so forth. And the truth is, I, I don't know how it works. <laughs> and the Master of Rolls has never tapped me on the shoulder and said, this is one for you, Bernard. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I've done a little bit of research on your uh, kind of the, the cases that you've given decisions in, both at first instance and court of appeal. And by my reckoning, very very rough reckoning, you, you've handed down judgments in at least sixty cases that had an insurance flavour to them. Um, other than the Gulf War cases, are, are there any others that particularly stand out for you? I think two cases which tickle my fancy are Drake and Provident Insurance, which was a consumer case, interestingly enough, as nearly all our cases in the commercial court were, a commercial insurance case. And Wise and Grupo Nacional, uh, which was a reinsurance case. So just to say a word about each, the Drake case was a car insurance case. It was the most consumer of consumer car insurance cases because this consumer insured had insured himself online, I think. And so the whole thing had been dealt with by algorithms and so forth. And all the questions he was asked to answer online had been dealt with online. And his premium had been rated online in an automatic way. And what went wrong was that when he renewed his insurance, he failed to disclose a speeding conviction. And as a result, when subsequently he or his wife had an accident, the insurers refused to pay. They purported to avoid for non-disclosure. But it emerged that 
if he had disclosed his speeding conviction, he would also have been led to disclose the fact that a previously disclosed claim, which had wrongly been disclosed as a fault collision, whereas in fact it arose out of someone shunting into the back of the consumer's car, it was in truth a no-fault collision, and it had been in the meantime settled entirely in favour of this insured. So what would have happened if there had been, as it were, a face-to-face discussion, or if the questions had been properly dealt with online, what would have emerged is that he had both a speeding conviction, but also the previous claim had turned into no-fault claim. And the result of that would have been that instead of having his premium rated more highly, he would have stayed exactly where he was. And so so we said, applying Pine Top Insurance, which said that the the insurer had to prove that the non-disclosure had induced the contract, we said, well, they hadn't proved that it had induced the contract because if there had been a disclosure, everything would have emerged and the premium would have stayed exactly what it was. So that was a very interesting consumer contract arising under the old 1906 Act. And it rather showed up some of the difficulties of the Act. And quite rightly, I think the Law Commission dealt with consumer insurance before it dealt with commercial insurance. Because what had happened was that the Marine Insurance Act 1906, which you can tell from its name, was an act concerned with merchant insurance, right? had, of course, completely laid its, its law over the whole of insurance, including non-marine insurance. And consumer insureds were really rather harshly dealt with. And the Consumer Insurance Act uh, has done a great deal, I think, to clarify and modernise the law there. We'll come back to the Insurance Act in a moment, but yet you mentioned a second case, Wise against Grupo Nacional. Yes, that was commercial insurance. That was a reinsurance of a, of a jewellery shop in Cancun. Uh, there is the famous resort in Mexico, and it was insured in Mexico, as under Mexican law it had to be insured, and it was reinsured in, in London at Lloyd's. And this jewellery shop had uh, set out a great deal of information about the kind of jewellery that it imported and sold, and it had an all-risk insurance, said everything about what it imported in monthly importations of jewellery. And amongst its imports was, you won't be surprised to hear, for a jewellery shop, watches, which ranged from quite cheap watches to extremely expensive watches. And the information provided to the insurers was that it imported a monthly consignment of watches up to a value of $18,000 a watch import cost, So you can imagine the cost in the shop would probably be up to three times that, $50,000 and so. You can imagine these um, Vacheron Constantines and uh, other such uh, famous watches being sold there with diamonds around the, the rim and that sort of stuff. Anyway, what happened, unfortunately, was that when the information provided to the Mexican insurer was translated for the purposes of reinsurance at Lloyd's, 
the Spanish word relojes, if I've pronounced it correctly, was mistranslated as clocks rather than watches. And apparently it means both clocks and watches, watches and clocks in Spanish. Anyway, it was mistranslated as clocks. So the insurers were told all about these monthly consignments of clocks up to a value of $18,000 per clock. And the, the reinsurers avoided the contract and, and said that there'd been a non-disclosure and, and, and so on and so forth. And indeed, there was evidence from the insurers that they never insured watches for jewelers. I don't know how they ever insured any jewelers on, on that basis. And they always had a warranty against watches. There wasn't a warranty against watches in this policy, nor even against clocks, if, if, it, if it comes to that. Anyway, I was very puzzled about all this, and I thought that the reinsurers, having told all about these clocks, should have asked the question, you know, what are, what are all these clocks? I mean, what are all these expensive antique clocks doing in a resort jeweler in Cancun? Month by month by month by month. It would have come out, there were watches, and then there would either have been an insurance or there, there wouldn't have been. And I was very unhappy about all this. The insured lost at trial, so it, it was their appeal. But I was the dissenting voice on that issue, although on another issue, the court split again, 2-1, but there I was in the majority. So the, the insured won its case, but it lost on the avoidance issue. But the Law Commission, come 2015, talked about this case and said that they're really, the insurers have to be prepared to ask questions. Uh, and I think the law has been tightened up, I think, somewhat against insurers and in favour of insureds. In, in part, I think, as a result of the Wise case and my dissent in it. So there you are. Those are two interesting cases. No, they're brilliant. And, and that brings us very neatly to the 2015 Act. UK lawyers will be aware of this, but for everyone else outside, the, the, the UK government passed the Insurance Act, uh, and this Act made some significant changes to certain aspects of, of insurance law and, and is generally regarded by insurance lawyers as a big thing. And, and apart from anything else, it, it abolished the duty of utmost good faith, which had been around for 300 years. Since Lord Mansfield. Uh, yeah, Car Car Carter and Boehm, that's right. So 250 years before, yeah. Just out of interest, when statutes like that are going through the process, to what extent are judges involved in the discussions and that how much did the Court of Appeal have input into the, the Insurance Act? Oh, I think a great deal. First of all, judges have had input for some decades in writing their, their judgments and pointing out that the 1906 Act was no longer working well. It's a good illustration of how even a brilliantly drafted act like the 1906, one of the three great acts drafted by Chalmers, and hats off to the drafting of that act. But a hundred years later, not everything is working well. So the judges had been making sounds in their judgments about this. Uh, there was a great deal of consultation about both the 2012 Consumer Act and the 2015 Insurance Act. 
great deal of consultation. The judges were certainly consulted and um, wrote in answer to the consultation papers. And also the judges were consulted in person. And I can remember a meeting in the royal courts between the law commissioners and the judges, both commercial judges and judges of the Court of Appeal, consulting about the acts. And interestingly enough, there was quite a division of attitude and opinion uh, amongst the judges. And if anything, the then commercial judges, I was by then in the Court of Appeal, were, how can I put it, more conservative than the Court of Appeal judges. And they were more concerned than the Court of Appeal judges were that any changes to the old law would exacerbate the problem of fraudulent claims. But I'm pleased that in the end that the Law Commission were less conservative than the more conservative commercial court judges, which I heard at that meeting. I don't know exactly how the Act has been working since 2012-2015. One of the problems, of course, is that since my time in the commercial court, when, as I was saying a moment ago, insurance disputes were very much flavour of the day, insurance disputes have now gone to arbitration and insurers are putting arbitration clauses in their policies. And disputes are frequently arising in arbitration and I see them in arbitration, but not in the courts. And as a result, because arbitration is confidential and we don't really know what the arbitrators are saying. And so I have a concern that insurance law, which was all over the place in the 1990s when I was in the commercial court, and to some extent in the Court of Appeals, the follow through of that, has now gone underground. And I'm a little fearful of consequences of that, but that's what's happened in any event. I don't think you're quite accurate forgive me to say this piece, to say that the 2015 Act abolished the duty of utmost good faith. What it did was abolish the sole remedy for a breach of the duty of good faith, being the remedy of avoidance of the insurance policy. And what it did is it said, we're now going to have a specific duty of fair presentation to deal with the problem of non-disclosure. And that will be taken away from the general duty of faith, and the duty of fair presentation was defined much more closely in the Insurance Act. The underlying duty of good faith is still there. Query how it will operate outside the duty of fair presentation. Will it affect interpretation and so on and so forth? That's an interesting question for the future. But the other thing that it did, most importantly, was that it revised the remedies for breach of the duty of fair presentation or duty of good faith. And it introduced a whole raft of much more proportionate and varied remedies. And that is, I think, a a great improvement. And it shows how the doctrine of proportionality, which is alive and well in the civil law, and is now a concept which has been introduced into the common law via the Human Rights Act, where the doctrine of proportionality is so important, is uh, perhaps going to have a bit of an influence in our insurance law. 
But I did find, when I looked at the Drake case, I did find a, a quote of mine, which perhaps I, I can just read. It's, uh, it's just a few sentences. By all means, go ahead. I said, in the context of that consumer case, quote, on the whole, English commercial law has not favoured the process of balancing rights and wrongs under a species of what would now be called a doctrine of proportionality. However, in insurance, the doctrine of good faith operates and the existence of widespread insurance contracts of a consumer nature presents new problems. It may be necessary to give wider effect to the doctrine of good faith and recognize that its impact may demand that ultimately regard must be had to a concept of proportionality implicit in fair dealing, end quote. And uh, that is in effect what the Law Commission in its Insurance Act did in terms of its proportionate remedies for non-disclosures of varying degrees of innocence or criminality. We're coming to the end of, of our discussion, which has been absolutely fabulous. But so I've got three um, questions to sort of finish off with. First and foremost, as, as a, a judge who's become synonymous with insurance law, have you ever actually had an opportunity to visit Lloyd's? Yes. I don't think I ever visited the old Lloyd's, but, but the new Lloyd's, which is getting old enough now, I did visit. I think it's a fabulous Fabulous building, really. Um, but what I was fascinated by on my visit was to see right in the middle of that vast, tall atrium, the uh, little museum-type collection of material, and in particular, the Nelson collection there. And I thought I was fascinated to see some of his personal silver there. But what actually took my breath away, and I hadn't even realised that it still existed, was to see the log of his victory at the Battle of Trafalgar open there with his famous message about what England expects um, there open on, on the relevant page. And to see that, not even knowing that, that it existed, just took my breath away. I, I thought that was wonderful. I went to uh, I went with my family to see the uh, HMS Victory recently, and it's. Uh, have you ever been? It's absolutely fantastic. But down in Portsmouth, um, it's yes, absolutely I a wonderful have, day I out. Have, yeah, in Portsmouth, and I've been in, into Nelson's the boardroom, as it were. Yes, that's right. With the table and the maps. Yeah. With the table and the maps, where he would entertain his officers for dinner. Yes, completely fascinating. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, it, it's a fantastic day out. At the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned your involvement with the London Philharmonic. Has music always played a, a large role in your life? And, and what's your standout memory from your involvement with the music world? Music has always played a, a large role in my life. I, I consider myself to be very lucky that it has done so. It's given me such intense pleasure. All people who love music of whatever kind will know everything about the huge pleasure that music can bring you. I was very lucky. My, my father was a very, very fine pianist. I think if life had been a bit kinder to him, uh, he would have liked to have been a professional pianist, as he certainly could have been. All his pianistic ability went to my wonderful sister rather than to me. I have a very, very poor ex-violinist, as I described myself <laughs> once to the, to the wonderful violinist, Maxim Vengerov. Oh, he said, you're a violinist. No, I said. 
I'm a very, very poor ex-violinist. <laughs> but uh, music has always played a great part in my life. And I was very fortunate that when I was still at the bar, I was invited to become a um, non-executive director of the London Philharmonic Orchestra. I've now been kicked upstairs to what they call the International Advisory Board. So I'm no longer a director of the orchestra itself. But I, I was for many, many decades. It gave me great pleasure. And although it didn't arise out of that directorship, I was very lucky that I was given a little walk-on part, non-singing part, by the English National Opera in Rosen Cavalier in their last performance of a run of Rosen Cavalier back in the early noughties, I think. I think I had just gone to the Court of Appeal and I was slightly worried about what a judge of the Court of Appeal was doing on the stage of the English National Opera at the Colosseum. And I remember that the English National Opera were very keen to give maximum publicity to my role there. And I was, I was a little coy about it and told them they couldn't, couldn't do that. I don't think it would have mattered. It was one of the great evenings of my life. I was part of the chorus. I was, as it were, playing the role of the accountant to one of the families involved in, in the story. And the chorus played a great trick on me. I had a dress rehearsal. Wonderful moment in the dress rehearsal was when I came into the hands of my dresser. And uh, I said to him, I said, what do I do now? And he said to me, you take off your trousers, sir. <laughs> <laughs> in order to dress. Anyway, they played a trick on me because although in the dress rehearsal, all the course had to do was to come on, on stage and, and sort of line up at the back of the stage and all the action continued into the front of the stage. By the time of the actual performance, they had decided that they were going to make greater use of this Lord Justice in their ranks. And without giving me any warning, during a duel which breaks out in the second act of Rosen Cavalier, they pushed me into the front of the stage where all the action was going on. And one of the jewelers made at me with his great broadsword and threatened me with it. <laughs> and although I'm a very, very bad actor, I think my acting on this occasion was quite good and realistic because it was all <laughs> a terrible surprise to me. <laughs> it was a most wonderful evening, wonderful evening. And it all happened. Yeah. I mentioned to the director of the English National Opera whom I met in, in the groom room a little earlier that I'd always would have loved to have been a, a sword bearer in, in some opera. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, oh well, perhaps my chest is not broad enough for a sword bearer, but uh, at any rate, a courtier, I, I said. And he, <laughs> he tweaked and things went on from there. Brilliant. No, that, that's absolutely wonderful. And, and finally, Bernard, what bit of advice would you give to a young barrister now who's, who's thinking about the prospect of developing a speciality in insurance? Uh, well, I think insurance is a wonderful subject. I mean, it covers the world. London is still one of the most important insurance centres in, in the world. And many, many insurance contracts are done under English law, so we're, we're very fortunate. And insurance is such an international thing. So you get wonderful problems, all problems that arise in, in the world, whether it's by storm on the sea or by war or, or revolution or insurrection or, or riot, it, it leads to an insurance claim sooner or later. And it's all fascinating. 
and it's all concerned with both contract interpretation, but also all the problems of the world. Insurance is all about risk, and business is all about risk-taking and entrepreneurship. And there you have the problem and some of the fascination of insurance law. As I've said, a lot of insurance has gone underground into arbitration. So if you want to practice insurance law, you'll have to get into the arbitration world as, as well. But that shouldn't be difficult for someone in the commercial sphere. It's a, it's a hugely enjoyable part of, of the world to practice in. I would recommend it. Thank you, Sabona. That was a privilege, an honour and an absolute joy. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for guiding me so carefully through these reminiscences. I hope that I've been able to entertain as well as to inform. RPC Radio. Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and please rate, review and share it. It really does help. Please also listen to another of our podcasts, Taxing Matters, which is hosted by my brilliant colleague, Alice Kemp. Insurance Covered is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you and I hope you have a lovely day.